Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. What's up, Lions of Liberty fans? You can now support this show on Patreon and get exclusive access to bonus audio and video content, including Conspiracy Corner, Degenerate Gamblers, bonus segments with guests, and so much more. Head on over to patreon.com slash lionsofliberty. Welcome to Electric Liberty Land, here on the Lions of Liberty podcast, your weekly shot of culture, comedy, and liberty with your host, Brian McWilliams. Ah, what's the story? My Liberty Morning Glories. This is Brian McWilliams, and this is Electric Liberty Land, episode number 79 which means you can find all the show notes for today's episode at lionsofliberty.com forward slash ELL79. And this episode, I'm actually recording in the morning. Recording in the morning because I have a uh, very busy schedule today and I'm just going through a hell of a stressful time in my personal life. And I uh, so I'm going to cram this in early on. I think my voice sounds all right. Shouldn't be too scratchy for you. I did get my ass out of bed. Not that I had slept all night, mind you, tossing and turning, but got my ass to go work up, get my blood pumping, and had the opportunity to finally listen to Monday's show from our podcast, which, um, if you don't know, John Odermatt and Mark Clare are both at the Libertarian National Convention right now, wherein they've been sitting down with a lot of the leaders of the movement, a lot of interesting personalities, including Larry Sharp and Tom Woods. Uh, in particular, Monday's show, the interview with Larry Sharp is just fantastic. Uh, I mean, Larry Sharp is a guy that I would put forward as the leader of this movement tomorrow and every day until doomsday. Because when you hear him speak, he is very gifted at communicating the ideas of liberty. He's very cognizant of what we need to do as a party and the issues that the Libertarian Party has as far as communicating. Now, this is something that I've been harping on as well, as you know. It's just listening to tell how half the people there have no idea who he is. And he's one of the most, he's running one of the most prominent campaigns. I mean, the guy has a literal shot to actually win uh, uh, as governor of New York. To hear that nobody has any idea who he is, is just shocking, shocking. And Larry was talking about the amount of emphasis or the amount of support that the Libertarian Party should give candidates and, the problems with their 2000 candidate plan, which I completely agree with them on. I'm not going to rehash it. Please go back, listen to Monday's show if you haven't uh, listened to that yet. And I'll put that in the show notes so you can you can find all of that. But he just really just nails it. It has to be selective emphasis where we can actually make an impact. There needs to be better communication from within the party and to the outside of the party to try to get more coverage, to try to get into on these issues. So just Larry Sharp, guys. Fantastic. And uh, please do listen to Monday's episode. Now then, on this here show, oh man, I, uh, so much to be upset about. I'm not going to do as much yelling as usual because it is a morning show. I don't want to scare my neighbors. 
Is that man beating his wife again so early in the morning? <laughs> As I scream into the microphone. So yeah, less less yelling today. Just uh, quiet, seething anger. That's what you're gonna get. Because we recently had. Uh, well, you know what? Before I go into that, let me let me stay on the Libertarian National Convention before I get into the the news of democratic socialism taking prominence not only on our local stage and in New York but also on a international stage with uh, a victory in Mexico. But before that, we have the status quo keeping uh, keeping place. The old guard remains with the LNC. That is the breaking news coming out. Nick Sirwark will retain his position as chair. Um, you know, and Nick's fine. Uh, Nick's, uh, he does a capable job as a, uh, a man who knows how to deal with the different factions I have obviously my own issues with him and, and things that he's stated in the past as far as uh, regards to Tom Woods and Ron Paul and, and various other um, concepts that he's put forward. But, you know, I, worse things could happen. But the big news, the super news out of the convention that I'm hearing is that Alex Merced, a friend of this podcast, and uh, he would have been my preferred candidate for vice chair has upset Arvind Vora, who is no longer going to be vice chair. Now, Arvind's one of those guys which it's interesting, and you hear him speak, and you hear him in the the vice chair debate that Mark had hosted. He does have a very good grasp of liberty. The problem is that Arvind often is a distraction. He often puts his foot in his mouth by virtue of trying to be too cute in some of his Facebook postings, in some of his statements on social media or in, uh, in various appearances he might make, wherein he goes too far and doesn't understand that just getting attention by saying something outlandish does not help the cause. All that does is reflect badly on libertarians as the wackadoo uncles of the political movement, wherein we need to stay principled. And he does stay principled. However, when you're attacking people in the military as all murderers or when you're saying that uh, when you're making a point in a roundabout way by by challenging the age of consent and you know, saying the 12 year olds, that doesn't help anybody. So while I can appreciate Arvind Vora and while I think he does bring a good level of intellectualism to his position, I hope that he's learned some lessons from the backlash he's gotten over the past year or so. Uh, and from the other candidates, especially from looking at people like Alex and looking at people like Josh, who are talking about a little bit better way to communicate when we're trying to to put a good public foot forward. And that does not in any way mean that we should be cuddling up to leftists and trying to disregard certain principles of liberty or try to water them down to the extent where we're drawing these people in when we know that they're, if, if, if they come to our side based upon a dilution of our principles, they're not going to stay around. And all we do is look like jerk-offs who, who can't stay consistent in our messaging. Okay, I'll leave the rest of that to Odie and Mark. They're there on site and, uh, and have much more in-depth reporting, I'm sure, that they will convey to all of you. Now then, let's talk about some democratic socialism, shall we? Because as I, as I titled this episode, it is called Tales of the Left because there is much to fear happening in uh, today's world and insofar as lefties are concerned. I'm going to talk a little bit about the would-be axe murderer threatening Rand Paul's family later. And, uh, but before I do, I want to talk a little bit about the rise of democratic socialism 
And we're seeing in our own backyard, we're seeing this this woman that's coming up in the Bronx. Uh, her name is Alexandria Ocasio or Cortez, pardon me. Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, who was one of primary unseating a uh, man named Mike Crowley, who had been a longtime incumbent. He was a, uh, oh, sorry, Joe Crowley, not Mike Crowley. Uh, he was a longtime incumbent out of Queens. He was deigned to be the next, you know, basically the, the heir apparent to Nancy Pelosi, even though the guy's 71 years old, by the way. Nancy Pelosi is like 77, 78, and this guy's 71. So, way to really change the guard there. Way to get some fresh blood in, guys. But, as you haven't seen to this guy, been there forever, and large in, largely in part to young voters, uh, voters of color in this district who, unsurprisingly, <laughs> came up in mass and voted out this old white dude after uh, this pretty young uh, Hispanic girl came in with her message of democratic socialism and appealed to all these Bernie heads that live in that region. Now, nobody should be really surprised because it is kind of funny that the left is reaping what it's sown because when you talk so much about white privilege and taking down the white man and white power. Now, of course this is going to happen. I think it's absolutely hilarious. I'm sad (laughs) that, that uh, we're seeing a democratic socialist get all this attention because of it, but I'm not sad in any way to see uh, an asshat like Joe Crowley get kicked out on his ass. And I like the, uh, the overturning of the establishment candidates in there. But at the same time, it does tell me just how stupid the voter base really is. And we saw it with Trump. We, we're seeing it now with uh, with these voters in the Bronx and Queens. And by the way, if you don't know, so this gal says she's from the Bronx, fine. Uh, she, <laughs> this quote cracked me up. She said on NBC's Meet the Press, I'm an educator, I'm an organizer. And I believe is what we're seeing is really a move for more healthcare, housing, and education in the United States. Now, what's funny about her saying she's an educator is that she can't actually describe what her position is in any real real sense. She has no concept of what socialism is, and her ideas about d- democratic socialism clearly ignore the lessons of the past, clearly ignore all of the horrors that socialism has brought. So really, you're saying you're an educator? It couldn't be more ridiculous, because what you're doing is propagandizing and in something that you don't even fully understand yourself. So yeah, I, I can't even call it educating. I would call it uh, brainwashing. I would call it um, playing into a popular concept that was put forth by an economic illiterate septuagenarian <laughs> during the last electoral cycle. Anyway, she came from behind a massive faction, uh, and, and which also makes me question the polling methods, because there's no way that someone should be polling 35% behind the incumbent, and then beat him by 15%, which I had voiced this before when we were talking about Trump and we we're talking about a lot of the uh, the polling in regards to Gary Johnson as well. But you have these polling companies that are typically polling people that, number one, want to be polled. Number two, are actually answering their phones. Who the hell does that anymore? And number three, have landlines. Uh, because they're not calling people on their cell phones or rarely you have to opt in for something like that. So you're getting people that are old sitting at home, waiting for the phone to ring, desperately hoping it's their kid. And, Oh, it's a, it's a poll. Oh, I've got nothing better to do. Matlock's not on for an hour. So these people answer. And of course they're going to say that they're, they're going for the older incumbent rather than somebody that's young. And, you know, look, this girl, 
I think she went around. She really was feet on the pavement, uh, going door to door, making sure people knew who she was. And that does go a long way, especially with younger people who are already kind of enamored with the ideas of Bernie Sanders. Like I said, she is a very good looking girl, which doesn't hurt, especially when you're going up against uh, the Crypt Keeper. And she just, you know, she's got some, uh, she's got some messaging that resonates with the younger generation that doesn't understand what has happened in the past. And that's really an issue. We're talking about education. The schools are not teaching what has happened with socialism. They're not teaching the extent that socialism has handicapped uh, generations in various countries, that it has led to deaths, that it has led to millions dying of starvation, dying of lack of resources. They're not talking about what's happening in Venezuela right now under a democratic socialism. I mean, you want to talk about democratic socialism, that's what we're seeing in Venezuela, a democratic election. Now, whether or not that's rigged or not is a, is a very big question. But in the first place, it was a, an elected representative. So you have democratic socialism, which has brought that country to its knees, a once wealthy country, wherein we see a nationalization of the oil, which was their biggest money-making resource, which, of course, led to those oil refineries, those oil wells breaking down, not being serviced properly because the government couldn't do it. Because as soon as we see any sort of large bureaucratic infrastructure, they can never maintain anything as well as private industry can. The incentives aren't there. The uh, resources as far as human capital aren't there. I just spilled coffee all over my legs. Fortunately, it was cold. <laughs> And what you end up having is that you have a broken down oil pipeline. You have broken down refineries. And now Venezuela can't make money off their oil industry. They also can't make any money off any of the other exports. They also can't uh, import things in any fashion that's going to take care of the public need, which is why they're running out of toilet paper, which is why they have mass starvation, which is why the military just literally this past week took over all of the water infrastructure because the government, which was already in control of the water, couldn't even keep that up. The socialist government, the magnificent democratic socialist government, couldn't even keep water in place for the people. They had a breakdown of the pipes, breaking down. They had a breakdown of the uh, the pumping systems. So now the military has taken over what spigots actually work and is basically rationing out water to those who can pay the most for it, to those who are politically corrected, corrected, <laughs> politically connected, and the general populace the meantime, has even less to uh, to get by with. These people that are already were starving, can't wipe their asses, now have to worry about not getting enough water to drink and dying of dehydration. I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, you can't trust the numbers coming out of Venezuela, but I wouldn't be surprised if we see a lot of infant deaths and infant mortality raise up as people are dehydrated because that is the biggest thing. But even more than starvation, a lack of water as a resource is uh, absolutely deadly. So Chuck Todd... Uh, much to his small credit, because I do despise Chuck Todd, asked Cortez about this issue and said, you know, you've got countries that have failed that are socialist countries. So, you know, what are you going to do about that? What are your what's your take on that? Uh, how do you explain the negative connotation? How do you explain the downfall of these countries operating under the system that you are pushing forth? And her answer was this is what I was saying. She you know, calling herself an educator when you answer like this is absolutely sad and depressing. So here was her response. 
the democrat the definition of democratic socialism to me again is the fact that in a modern moral and wealthy society no american should be too poor to live now i'm going to stop and interject here uh what's funny about this is that yes we do have a modern moral and wealthy society and do you know how we got there it's a little thing called capitalism you don't get there by doing socialism because no societies exist that were founded upon socialism and still exist on socialism because either there is a rebellion from the people after they starve to death or they collapse on themselves because they simply can't run the country well enough to keep their resources in check. Again, as we're seeing with Venezuela right now, which may be a two thing. We might see not only a rebellion, but also the complete collapse of the, uh, the system. We already know their currency is completely devalued. So... <laughs> Yes. So so now that we're rich and and healthy, that's when we have to try socialism. And this is basically what had happened with countries like Sweden, who's already rejecting their own socialism, by the way, and upending their welfare state they've created. Uh, Places like uh, Switzerland that had this incredible wealth and then said, oh, well, now we're so rich that we can do socialism. But even then, they're not a, a socialist system. They are still a very capitalist system. And very publicly say, no, no, we have certain social aspects like, for instance, the welfare system in place or the uh, the healthcare systems in place. But we are, in fact, exceptionally capitalist and their economic freedom index is way above the United States if you actually go and look. So while they have these so- these socialistic principles, which are being degraded and eroded because of immigration and other issues, which is why they're having so many issues upkeeping them because – Look, when you have a small country of 2 million people that are all basically the exact same, uh, it's a little bit easier to run that system than when you have all sorts of people coming in that aren't necessarily paying the same amount of high taxes because they haven't had the benefit of living under this free capitalist system and accruing all this wealth before the socialist system got put into pace. Anyway, so she's ignoring the fact that uh, how we got to this point. Uh, moving on. She says that people should have access to, quote, dignified health care. Which, what what the fuck does that mean? Okay, what is your definition of dignified healthcare? Uh, how about having any healthcare? It, well, that's pretty dignified to me. How about here's a here's a better example of dignified healthcare. How about healthcare wherein you don't have a cronyist system in place fostered by the government, wherein people basically have to have health insurance because the costs have skyrocketed due to said cronyism, and instead have a system. Where you have a doctor, you go to, you pay a, a, about the negotiate yourself that is probably somewhere between fifty and hundred dollars for service, and they don't do all sorts of uh, of various testing. There's no massive wait lists uh, as with happens with countries that have socialist system. There's no wait to see a specialist for a year and a half. People aren't just waiting around and dying. There's no systems wherein people have babies that need to get treatment out of the country, but they're not allowed to leave the hospital because the government mandated healthcare says that it wouldn't be worth it. <laughs> You know, I'd rather have that. It, to me, dignity in healthcare is being able to have choice over my healthcare. Um, undignified healthcare seems to be a system that they have, say, like in Cuba, wherein you've got hospitals ridden with disease, with rodents, with human feces, with people on stretchers in the hallways because they don't have enough resources. And people just simply lie there getting gangrene while they wait for somebody to take care of their gaping head wound. That seems less dignified to me. Dignity to me would be able to take my child that has a rare disease out of a hospital and being able to 
try to get that child treatment when hospitals abroad say, yes, please, we'll take him. If you can get him here, we will treat him. Uh, A lack of dignity to me would be telling parents that their child is doomed to die because it's simply not worth enough money to the social system that they have in place for health care to take that child out. That seems to be a lack of dignity to me. All right, next thing she says, she wants to have everybody have the ability to send their children to college or trade schools. All right, well, everybody does have the ability. They may not have the resources. They may not have the intelligence. They may not have the political or social connections. But everyone has the ability. This is what I don't think these people, these these socialists understand. Ability is not something that you can simply hand out. It's not, it's not something where everyone gets their ability card and you go up and you say, here's my ability card. One job, please. No, you have to have a certain level of ability. So everybody has ability to send their children to college. You can find, look, if you have money or if you have the ability to fill out enough forms and if you have the ability to find enough ways to, to work your way in there and get funding in place, you can send your kid to college. There are enough colleges out there at this point in time that you could find a, a, a college for your doofus or a trade school. She even says it were a trade school. You're telling me you can't get a kid placed in a trade school? You know, the ability to do that is simple, especially with government backing student loans. Everybody has the ability already to go to college and trade schools. The problem is that too many people are going to college. The problem with, is with emphasizing everybody gets education is that you are diluting the education pool. You are diluting the value of it. So what is the point? Just like Venezuela's currency, you're turning college into Venezuela's fucking currency. You're boulevarding it up. And then talking about no one should feel precarious or unstable in their pursuit of housing. Well, you know, in a perfect world, I'd agree with you. The problem is, and I've talked about this multiple times in regards to Seattle, in regards to Los Angeles, in regards to San Francisco, or any major market. You have a precarious situation that arises when too much government is present, not too little. You have a precarious situation when you have housing prices skyrocketing and you don't have enough available units to replace them because government puts so much red tape and barriers in the way of actually building those new housing units. You have a precarious or unstable situation wherein you've got people trying to force through a certain wage level that employers simply won't pay and you eliminate those low-paying jobs that people that don't have the high level of ability to get need to sustain their lives. And also, these are the other thing these socialists love to talk about and all of these these warriors for uh, equal housing opportunity need to understand. I'm sorry, but you don't have a right to stay somewhere you can't afford. You can move. You should move. There are places outside of Los Angeles, not even an hour. You could walk there. If you don't have a car, you can take a bus for $3. And the cost of living is so astronomically cheap. You could go to the liquor store, you could buy a $2 bottle of Jim Beam, and then go out for a $4 steak dinner. Because they're they're small communities. Get a job at a local store there. Live in a small community. 
or telecommute from home living in a small community where it's super cheap. You don't need to live in a big, expensive city and do not tell me it's hard to get out. I love this argument too, where people go, well, deal these immigrants, they, what are they going to do? It seems to me they walked across a fucking desert to get here. I mean, that's a pretty long trek. If they can walk across 70 miles of boiling hot desert with their kids, they can walk another hour to somewhere where they can afford to live and have a good life rather than trying to scrape by desperately in an expensive city. And if they do choose to stay here, it's because they found enough opportunity that they can afford to stay here. If they can't, then they should not simply stay and be put on a dole to stay here that costs everybody else who does have the ability to stay here their hard-earned cash. Okay. Anyway, moving on. It's just, it's frustrating that this, uh, this gal won. I mean, she's she will definitely take this primary. New York is so idiotically liberal that it'll be a slam dunk. And Brooklyn slash Queens or Bronx slash Queens. Queens is the new Brooklyn. If you don't know, my sister lives in Queens right now. Uh, it used to be primarily like a Catholic Irish area. Now it's been a lot of mix in there, a lot of Filipino, um, <laughs> shockingly big Filipino transgender community in there. <laughs> so I doubt they're voting Republican. So you're going to have her, her take this pretty easily going up against a Republican named Anthony Pappas. I just don't see a way that she's going to lose. So she'll probably get in there, but you know, much to my chagrin, because it just, it really does showcase the ignorance of people that are voting in that, that the power of this concept by putting democratic in front of socialism, somehow it makes it not so evil and not so bad, which just isn't the case. I mean, let's not forget that, Nazism was democratically elected. Yes, Hitler was voted into power. So if we say, well, well, let's try democratic Nazism. Does that make Nazism okay? No, no, it doesn't. It's still Nazism. Putting democratic in front of anything doesn't make it magically okay. All right. I've been going on along this South. Let's let's transition here to another democratic socialist over in Mexico because we just had a new president elected in Mexico, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador. They call him a- AMLO. He ran a populist campaign, tried promised to tackle corruption, impose price, price controls, which <laughs> we all know how those work out. Every time you put price controls on anything, just like the gas crisis here, just the gas crisis everywhere. Doesn't work. But anyway, keep on keep on keeping on uh, AMLO and rewrite NAFTA, which, hey, I'm fine with that. Rewrite NAFTA all you want. Um, anyway, this guy, he took the took the reins. What's funny about this is that he, he's openly socialist, openly populist and openly protectionist. So it's all kind of working in conjunction one on top of the other. And the funny thing is, though, this guy ran twice before. He ran the last two election cycles on a very socialist, unabashedly socialist platform. And this is what I'm talking about. We're talking about the absolute stupidity of voters and how frustrating it is because people are just incredibly ignorant and riding this just whatever is the current cultural wave. You know, this guy, because of Trump, 
because of what Trump has been doing as far as a little bit more of his protectionist measures, uh, this guy got swept into office, but he did change his message. This guy, has been, he's been around for eight years previously, running openly socialist, but people went, ah, that's too socialist for us. Now he slightly changed his message and pulled some of that socialist rhetoric back. And these people are like, oh, well, he's he's clearly changed. It's like, no, he hasn't. He hasn't changed at all. He's, he's an avowed socialist. I mean, it's like when Hillary Clinton changed her position on gay marriage. Oh, yeah, you, suddenly she's all for it. Or on crime and, and the drug war. It's like Hillary Clinton hasn't changed her mind on shit. This guy hasn't changed. He's been campaigning about something for 20 years. Still the same person. So now you've got this guy going in there. He's already talked about pulling a Venezuela. We're going to see Mexico turn to Venezuela. And this is the scary thing. We've already got an issue with illegal immigration coming in, right? We've already got this on the border. I've talked about it before. We cannot support a high level of illegal immigration with the welfare state as it currently stands. If you look to LA, it's already a huge burden on the infrastructure here, especially the school systems. School systems cannot catch up fast enough to, to, to take care of the illegal immigration. That's why the US, uh, LAUSD school system is completely fucked. In addition to the fact that they add bureaucrats instead of teachers. So you've got, you've got a, a school system in crisis that doesn't have enough money despite having more money than any other nation on earth to educate kids. But instead of hiring more teachers or trying to build more classrooms or add on to schools, they keep adding bureaucratic levels. I, I, I've never seen anything like it. But anyway, so you've got Mexico, which already is a high level of legal immigration coming in from Mexico. And now you've got this socialist president in there who wants to nationalize the oil industry just like Venezuela, because we saw how well that worked out. And if you drive through Upper Mexico, by the way, you know, Lower Mexico is a little nicer, Central Mexico is a little nicer. But if you go through Upper Mexico and you look at the level of infrastructure and how well everything's taken care of there, it's like, holy bejeebus. It is a just slum, like endless slums for a good 40 minutes. But getting back to the point. So he wants to nationalize the oil industries. So that's just going to destroy their oil industry completely. He already is talking about putting the price controls, like I said, on gasoline, which is going to just make them skyrocket completely out of control. We already can see what's going to happen with the peso. And not to mention, so if he does try to compete and, and you know rip up the NAFTA as it is and try to raise the level of wages, which is what Trump wants uh, and would be idiotic, if he wants to let, raise the level of wages in that country to compete with American wages for the auto industry, or any other industry, here's what's going to happen. <laughs> Everybody's going to pull all their infrastructure, pull all their companies out of Mexico, and they're just going to go over to Asia, or they're going to, over, going to go to some different South American country and set up camp there. And the only reason the auto industry has been able to succeed is, is by outsourcing a lot of this stuff to stay competitive, because you simply cannot stay competitive in a global market by paying people way too much for a product that is in no way arguably better than any foreign product that's being imported. And then you're going to, what, slap tariffs on it to make them as just as expensive? All that's going to do is hurt people domestically again and drive up the price of cars here in the United States, which will drive down car sales and bankrupt the current auto industry that we have in the country, in addition to hurting people here that are just trying to get to work. So... You add all these things together, and God knows what else the guy's going to do down there. This is just the, the initial reports I'm reading coming out of here. But you talk about illegal immigration now. Just imagine how many people are going to be flooding across that border when Mexico goes full Venezuela. 
I mean, God damn, we have something like a million plus immigrants coming in now. That's no one's going to spike to 10 million. And there's no way that we've got the infrastructure. I mean, that's where, you know what you talk about a wall. That's where you actually may see a wall get built. Because when you start seeing just 10 times the amount of illegals pouring into this country because Mexico's completely collapsed on itself under this socialist <laughs> democratic system, that's when you're going to see people actually say, okay, fuck it, put up the wall. All right, let's take a break. I'll be right back. We'll talk a little bit about some axe murder and then California pulling the croniest. I guess it's a good thing, but it's also insanely cronious. So we'll be right back. We don't rise to the level of our expectations. We fall to the level of our training. Those epic words from Archilochus can sum up your ability to succeed or fail in business. I want to recommend Conversation Mat Time to our listeners as a way to hone your one-on-one conversation skills in a role-playing session that can help take you to the next level. During 25-minute sessions, you'll work through the best way to approach that raise, that interview, or that relationship with a practice professional that will provide the confidence and experience you need to get paid what you're worth or take that interpersonal risk you've never been able to conquer. Just like in jiu-jitsu, the difference between a novice and a black belt is mat time. Train to win. Visit conversationmattime.com and take advantage of a free 15-minute consultation just for listeners of this show. All right, we are back with Electric Liberty Land, episode 79. I'll wrap this, uh, wrap this bad boy up so I can shower and go to work. But we got to come back in and talk about this Rand Paul story, wherein a man several times called in threats to his Bowling Green, Kentucky office, the most recent of which, and which he has been arrested for. Uh, and I don't know the man's name. I was trying to find it, but I, I couldn't find it released anywhere. But Man called in threats, basically saying he was going to come and chop up Rand Paul's family with an axe. Of course, this is just the latest uh, in a long instance of, as I said, tales from the left. Left. <laughs> I'll probably do a little bit something fancier with that, but I ain't had the time today. But getting back into it, this is a little something to do with Maxine Waters calling for open rebellion, telling for people to stalk cabinet members, and follows Rene Bouget, Rand Paul's neighbor, who still insists that he only tackled Rand Paul unsolicited when Rand wasn't looking, riding his lawnmower with headphones on. Not politically motivated at all, but because Rand was stocking lawn clippings near his yard. Not even not not even on his yard, near his neighbor's yard. So we've got now this latest example wherein you have people calling in, threatening to murder someone's family with an axe. And Rand Paul of all people. Why Rand Paul? If you're gonna go after somebody. There are literally hundreds of worse people that you can go after in regards to this. I don't advocate it in any way, of course, but Rand fucking Paul, hashtag Randy pants. Leave Rand's pants alone. He's one of the good ones. I mean, why? in what, what world, what would anything Rand Paul? I mean, the thing that pisses me off the most, obviously, is the, the omnibus spending bill. 
that pisses me off. But at the same time, he's still one of the most principled people speaking out against war. He's still one of the people speaking out for states' rights, pushing back against the Fed, pushing back against Trump when he when he's talking about going to war and and, and you know he's a voice of reason and a guy that goes to Haiti and does free eye surgery for kids. And this is the man you want to attack and chop up his family with an axe. So you're telling me now, and this is, I've, I've had arguments with people about this. The left is crazy. There are far more people that are absolutely batshit insane and violent on the left than the right. We're seeing it with Antifa constantly. We're not seeing any Trump supporters uh, unless they're provoked. I think I could remember a couple times, maybe. But again, all provoked by the, by people on the left, especially people that are plants from the left. But you're seeing Antifa beat the living hell out of elderly men on the sidewalk. You're seeing Antifa beat people up that are just trying to speak. You're seeing this, this axe-murdering threats. You're seeing shooters going and shooting up congressional softball games. The left is far more violent. And this comes from a number of different things. Number one, the left is so used to having one narrative that is unchallenged. And when it is challenged, the response is not to actually engage or listen or or have a dialogue about it. It's simply to attack, demean, and dehumanize. And I talked a little bit about this last episode because we're talking this Maxine Waters shit. You're dehumanizing people. And when you can dehumanize people, you can go and say, I'm going to chop you up because now you're the enemy. Now you're evil. You're not a human being anymore. And the reason we also have people who have so much more violent response on the left is because they're simply so rooted in emotion. The amount of times I've tried to talk to friends of mine, very close friends of mine, about issues that they, I mean, they're, they're not even impacting them directly as people, but they get so emotional, so angry, so defensive because at their core, they just feel such an emotional connection to these, these justice causes that they don't even understand most of the time. Oh, yelling, I got to quiet down. Don't even understand them. But the emotion is so much stronger than the logic, than the reason. And that's where libertarians, we get hit a lot of the time because we do have a little bit more of a of a trend towards being a little bit colder, being a little bit more rational. We, I mean, libertarians are very rational people. Um, you know, we think things out. We have strong opinions that are based in reason. They're based in research. They're based in a sound philosophy. Whereas people on the left and people on the right, although the right's much more uh, easy to reach, in my opinion, but people on the right have their own issues. You know, we talk about of the abortion issue. We talk about religion. People on the right cling to those ideas, and those are also a very emotional, very spiritual belief. Where and it's hard to reach people with with rational discussion a lot of the time. But on the left, goddamn man, they just get violent when you challenge their ideas. They get angry and they don't know how to deal with it because like I said, they're not used to not getting their way. You have the media dominated by the left. You have comedy and entertainment dominated by the left, especially entertainment because those are designed TV movies, the podcast NPR puts out. They are designed specifically to hit on certain things as a writer who's writing a movie right now. I can tell you this for a fact. There are certain points that you need to hit in a movie. 
These are emotional cues. They're emotional tie-ins that grab people, that wrap them into the story. And when you have 99% of the content coming from the left, all of those stories are tying into liberal, well, not even liberal, progressive talking points and progressive beliefs. And they are tied into these emotional cues. So when you see the social justice warrior film and the music swells and everybody in the crowd goes, oh my God, yes, see, this is what Trump's attacking. He's attacking Moonlight. (laughs) You have these people that are emotionally invested, that they're wrapped up, they're reinforcing this shell they build around themselves. And if you try to crack that shell, the only response they have is violent anger. And that's what we're seeing with this Rand Paul stuff. So it is terrifying. And, and, and the left, they're not backing down. Maxine Waters has made it worse. Nancy Pelosi is doing a little bit better. I mean, I hope this, uh, this woman Cortez, Ocasio-Cortez, I hope, I hope she's as sweet as she, uh, she looks. She looks like she's got a sweet temperament to her, but I don't know. Maybe she'll go Maxine Waters and call for the assassination of somebody while she's in office. Anyway, all right, last thing I want to talk about uh, just to wrap this show up is California and Governor Jerry Brown just rolled over on his little bitch back and signed a bill which on its surface sounds great, right? Let me lay this sugary treat on you. So they were considering one of the stupidest measures that has proven to be idiotic everywhere it's been tried, including Seattle, including Philadelphia. And that's a tax on soda. Now, in Philadelphia, we see clear evidence of what happened because in Philadelphia, they put a soda tax on. And what did we see? Up, we saw unemployment rise. We saw sales go down of sodas within the city limits. And we saw layoffs because of that, because soda actually is a big seller. So all the grocery stores that had to raise their prices, they laid off customers, they laid off workers as people simply drove outside of the city to buy their soda because government, you fucking jerk offs need to realize that you can't just try to tax people's habits out of, out of, you know, try to change people's habits by taxing the shit out of it. And soda is something which isn't like cigarettes. It isn't, it doesn't have a social uh, demonization that continues to take place by those idiotic truth commercials. Uh, another great waste of taxpayer money, by the way, creating all these anti-smoking campaigns. So people simply go outside and buy it. Same thing with Seattle. Simply go outside the city to buy it. Same thing in New York. Overturned. So Los Angeles, that was on the on the table. And the soda companies did something which very, uh, very clever for them. But they managed to get a ballot measure put on the next upcoming ballot election, uh, whatever it is. And that would basically say, okay, any single measure, any tax that's supposed to be put on any sort of consumer good would require a super majority in the legislature. So, you know, rather than just the regular majority, you have to have it gets, you know, two thirds vote. Now that scared the living piss out of governor Jerry Brown. And so governor Jerry Brown signed a bill that said, we're not going to ban any sodas or we're not going to tax any sodas like that. But in exchange, the soda lobby has pulled their ballot off the uh, the next election cycle. So, as I said, great that there's no soda tax, but, man, that sucks because I would have loved to have 
the opportunity to force a supermajority, and I'm going to see what I can do to get it back on the, the ballot, frankly. Uh, I'm going to look into what, what I can do and how to campaign to get that back on there. But I'd rather have a supermajority required to put forth a tax on anything because we already have this ridiculous da- ca- like gas tax of 35 cents a gallon they just put on our gas. Massively increases the cost of gas every time you fill up. And thank God, the last election that we just had, there was a ballot measure to make sure that that money actually goes to fixing the roads because you know what? None of it was. None of the previous gas tax was. It was something like, you know, 1 billion out of 80 billion actually went towards fixing the roads in California, which are shit. They're shit crumbling apart. And while I would advocate the private companies take over this operation, obviously, if we're going to be taxed, I'd rather have that tax actually going towards what it's meant for rather than going into a government slush fund, which is what was happening. So thank God, at least the voters of California, while, while screwing us over on any number of other initiatives, at least voted this time intelligently to say, no, put it where it's supposed to be going. So that passed. But in the meantime, we have to, Jerry Brown capitulates, the cronyism wins the day. So good job, Jerry, by showing your true colors and rolling over so that you can continue to tax the living shit out of all of us here in California, unimpeded by a supermajority vote. All right, that's going to wrap it up for this episode, guys. I uh, will talk to Michael Bolden of the 10th Amendment Center. I'm really looking forward to that. I want to get into a little bit about the... uh, Southern Poverty Law Center with him, and uh, and of course, just talk about some current events. We're going to do a little bit of talking about 10th Amendment issues, but overall, Michael's just an awesome, very funny, very intelligent guy, so just fun to talk to him and uh, come, in, come in friends with him as he's right here in Los Angeles, so enjoying hanging out with him whenever I see him. All right, guys, until next time, I am Brian McWilliams. This is Electric Liberty Land, and I want to remind you to always stay plugged in to liberty. <laughs>